From WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, this is Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we're at the sixth episode now of Public Reading Club. Uh, it's really been a blast uh, talking about different books and speaking to different authors about their career. Uh, last week, uh, previous two weeks, I guess you'd say, we had a great interview with Lawrence Block, uh, a legend in the crime and mystery and thriller uh, genres. Um, the point of the show is really to kind of diversify the people that we speak to but the truth is it's kind of been me uh maybe talking to myself a little bit on this show but uh i can say that we do have another uh fantastic guest uh, a hard-boiled writer uh, that's really held in the highest esteem uh he's been called the hard-boiled poet by npr's marine corrigan He's a New York Times bestselling author of 31 novels, including six in the Robert B. Parker, Jesse Stone series. He's a four-time recipient of the Seamus Award for Best P.I. Novel of the Year, four-time Edgar Award nominee in three different categories. Um, He claims to be a pretty good basketball player. That remains to be seen. Our guest today is Reed Farrell Coleman. Uh... it's hard to know where to start. Uh, he's had just such an uh, extraordinary career that's influenced me, and um, I think he's a popular writer because he gets. Uh, I think he gets the stories he's trying to tell perfectly uh, a lot of the time, and uh, I think that's difficult. Um, I kind of first really stumbled onto him. Uh, a few years ago when I got more into Robert B. Parker, just deeper into his kind of galaxy, and I discovered the Jesse Stone books and then, you know, kind of followed them up with the uh, kitschy um, Tom Selleck movies that are available for free if you have the streaming app cracked. Um, He's a fantastic writer, and he has created so many endearing characters that it was almost surreal having him on the show and getting to speak to him uh, pretty directly about different characters he created and different ups and downs and uh, kind of side uh, side routes, if you will, in the writing and publishing industry. Um, this was a conversation that probably could have gone on three hours We've been trying to limit the shows to about an hour and a half. Uh, But this was a conversation that could have kept going and going. And it was really great to speak with him and to have lunch with him. Um, His new book, Sleepless City, uh, is really fantastic. We're going to get into it later in the show. But he uh, was kind enough to have an advanced reading copy sent to me. And I just, uh, I have to say that... uh, it's a simple story with characters that um, aren't 
necessarily the most complex but the situation they find themselves in is is pretty complex and they and the main character does things to kind of accelerate that and kind of throw a little gasoline on the situation at times uh i really enjoyed this book it was the type of book where i brought it everywhere with me um every time i was at lunch and had uh you know an hour or so to to myself uh, i i dove right into it i i think anybody who starts reading this book won't be able to put it down they'll they'll similarly enjoy uh the great book that reed farrell coleman has crafted in sleepless city uh, the tagline is when you're in trouble you call 911 when the cops are in trouble they call nick ryan um that's something that reed gets into later it's an interesting book about a fixture if you're into the crime uh mystery a little bit action kind of genre uh, this is a book for you, and I think a lot of people are going to actually relate to the situations that are kind of covered in the book. There are um, some characters that have some similarities with people that are making headlines today, for better or worse. And I think that uh, when you take someone like a Reed Farrell Coleman, who has so many great novels, uh it's it's always an interesting journey when they start a new character. He had a character called Gus Murphy that I was really into um, for quite a while. And uh, there were two books from him, but I also zoomed through most of the stuff he did with the Jesse Stone character uh, in the Robert B. Parker uh, kind of library there. So um, what do you say there there were books we didn't talk about which hopefully we'll have uh, again on public reading club to discuss his next book but it was really fantastic to have this experience of doing this show and getting a, an advanced reader's copy of reed farrell coleman's new book which i really uh, i just have to give my highest recommendation if you like that uh police uh crime uh, kind of contemporary story you're going to really like Sleepless City uh, it's uh, it, again it was hard to put down and there are parts of it that I've already gone back to since I've read it I've, I've really torn through this copy when they give you these advanced readers copies um, this is a soft cover um, you know th these things come and they're like a brick but I've really put so much time into it. The damn book is nearly falling apart. So uh, I'm going to have to replace this as soon as it comes out, uh, which is in July. So it's a July re release date uh, for Sleepless City. And then if you want to listen to this show, there are a number of good books that Reed Farrell Coleman uh, has written. I can't uh, suggest that you read... Um, uh, where It Hurts and What You Break, uh, which are his Gus Murphy novels, uh, both very good stories, uh, a really cool kind of interesting character. And, uh, you know, then there are his original uh, books, the Mo Prager series, and uh, it, just a fantastic writer to enjoy his library. And it was great to talk with him about writing. I think often today, uh, especially when the publishing industry is often rewarding younger people um, that really haven't been through many years in writing yet and seem like they have it all figured out. Well, I mean, here's a guy who's written 30 novels and survived a bunch of 
probably crappy or dead end jobs or jobs he just didn't like uh, to be, you know, in my opinion, one of the best crime writers working in the world today. I, I really enjoy his books. They all make sense. They, you know, they, they stretch the imagination sometimes, but that I think that's what fiction forces you to do. And and sometimes it, um, you know, it's it totally requires it. But uh, Reed Farrell Coleman's been a, just a great uh, person to get on this show, and I look forward to talking to him again. This is a public reading club from WXEI 91.7 and streaming on WXEI.org from Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut. I I am your host, Matt Caputo, and I would like to let you know that you're always welcome to send us book recommendations, um, book reviews if you want, uh, you know, just try and keep it to like 100 words or so or whatever you think is reasonable to be read uh, on this show. We only have an hour and a half uh, every two weeks for a new show, so keep that in mind. But again, you can send those to us at the public reading club at gmail.com. You can also send us uh, book recommendations via direct message on Instagram. So please uh, get involved. We want to thank the people who do give us recommendations Patricia at the Froyo shop in Bethel. And uh, also Ron Evans and occasionally a gentleman named Eugene Kehoe who hasn't sent us a voicemail in a while, but we look forward to his uh, next contribution to Public Reading Club's uh, book recommendation generation. So uh, without further ado, um, we'd like to invite you to stick around and uh, check out our interview with the fantastic author of the new book, Sleepless City. Reed Farrell Coleman. On a tone. Like the cost of getting on the subway is prohibitive these days. <laughs> like, you know, it's terrible. Okay. Welcome back. Our guest today has been called the hard-boiled poet by NPR. A New York Times best-selling author of over 30 books, Reed Farrell Coleman has been nominated for the Edgar Award four times in three different categories. He's a four-time recipient of the Seamus Award for P.I. Novel of the Year, and he is the author of the new book, Sleepless City, out in July from Blackstone. Reed, glad to have you here today. Certainly one of my favorite writers. How was the trek up from Long Island? Uh, no answers until you send me the check you promised. <laughs> no, it was a, it's a lovely day. It was a great drive. It's, you know, whenever you can leave Long Island after rush hour, it's a good day. I wanted to ask you, uh, before we get into discussing kind of the length of your career and, and the different things you've done over 30 novels, tell us a little bit about Sleepless City. Let the audience know exactly what the new book is like. How can you explain it to people? Elevator pitch. Well, oh, an elevator pitch. <laughs> the, the dreaded elevator pitch. Um, well, let me give you the tagline for the book. The tagline for the book is, when you're in trouble, you call 911. When the cops are in trouble, they call Nick Ryan. That is both it in a nutshell and way insufficient a description. Uh, basically, Nick Ryan, uh, as you've surmised, is uh, kind of a fixer, kind of a Ray Donovan with a badge. Except if you guys know Ray Donovan, he he didn't exactly struggle with the moral issues of what he did. He just did. He did, them. yeah. Uh, my don't enjoy that. 
I, I believe in, in, uh, in life, people pay uh, a kind of emotional price for the choices they make. And Nick has to make choices that are far more difficult than the day-to-day choices like what we're going to have for breakfast that most people make. He certainly, in some sticky situations, uh, it's a little, tiny little bit of a, a slow roll that leads up to, without giving any spoilers away, kind of a bombshell he discovers in the um, stairway of an allegedly uh, burning building or is a gas leak or something. A gas, like, leak. A gas leak in the building. And, uh, they're, they're, you know, a mystery and kind of in a, a shadowy adventure uh, starts right after that. I've, I've really been enjoying the book. Before we get into, again, more of your uh, kind of your backstory of your career, what, what kind of drove you to create this character? You've created another. This would probably be your sixth character you've created, kind of, that <laughs> I've that's lost, been published. I've lost count, yeah, to yeah. tell you the truth. Uh, you know, I always say I, I'll keep writing until I get it correct. Uh, so I, I have an agent, uh, Shane Salerno. He's a fairly famous screenwriter as well as being an agent. He wrote Armageddon. He wrote Armageddon. He wrote uh, the second Av- Avatar movie. He's one of the writers of that and, and all the other sequels to it. He wrote uh, Savages. Um, so he's a writer. And sometimes we would t- we talk about writing. And one day he was talking to me about a character he's had an idea for for a long time, but who he'd never had the time to really flesh out the character. Uh, and I said, you know that that's a character I think I could write because it's morally complex. Yeah. Uh, and and he, of course he's my agent, so he couldn't say no, no, you're not talented enough to do that. And he said, run with it, and I ran with it. Is that? Those morally complex characters, obviously, you, you, you've played around with so many characters, but after doing something that's so commercially driven, like the Jesse Stone series, these are the be- you know these are some of the best drugstore novels out there. Was was that something that you wanted to spend more time with the complex situations? Well, you know, it's funny is I I tried to do that with Jesse. Uh, it's interesting writing someone else's character. Yeah. Uh, because you have to make that character your own eventually. Yeah, I'm going to get into that a little later. Okay. I actually have some notes here about how you forwarded the situations he was in in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, I, I was in Coney Island last night. I know that's where you're from. It took me right to some of the scenes from Sleepless City. Uh, r- really vivid uh, for me. Uh, traveling back and forth to play in a men's ice hockey Was it at the Abe Stark rink? Yes, it is. Yeah. And I can see from from the parking lot of the rink, I can see some of the part of the boardwalk you're talking about in this book. So it's very, very vivid to me. I had so much fun reading it. I'm very uh, thankful you did the book. But I wanted you to just kind of backtrack for us. You know, we, we had a really nice talk down the block at TK's. It was just wonderful to talk about the PI novels and kind of the writing biz. But... Why don't you give our audience a little backtrack on you, backtrack on you as a writer and a person. Where, where are you actually from? Where's yeah, I, I'm actually from an area of Brooklyn that borders Coney Island, Brighton Beach, Sheepshead Bay, and Gravesend. So it's it's interesting. Where are you from? Where am I? Brooklyn. But where? No, where? Oh, Ocean Parkway Ocean and Avenue. Po- Ocean Parkway and Avenue Z in the shadow, literally in the shadow of Coney Island right. Hospital. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and I, I went to exactly. and I went to Lincoln High School, 
and Brooklyn College. Yeah, Lincoln High School, very well-known high school, good for basketball and many other. Many famous many, people. Did Norman Mailer go there? Is no, uh, Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller. Joseph Heller. Yes. Uh, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Mel Brooks. The great New York Knicks point guard, Stefan Marbury. Yeah, Stefan Marbury, Sebastian Telfair. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lance Stevenson, Lance many Stevens, NBA players. A lot of NBA players. Uh, uh, and... I think it said some way that you got into writing in high school. What were you getting into at that time? <laughs> it's funny. Is uh, I think I'm the only person who ever gave up a starting position on the football team to become the editor of the literary magazine. <laughs> uh, I started writing poetry when I was about 13 years old and got published in school stuff. And then actually by the time I was in high school, it got published in journals outside of school. So I thought I'm, I'm going to do what a lot of poets do which is have normal jobs and publish poetry because I have a saying, if you want to be poor, be a writer. If you want to be destitute, be a poet. <laughs> it's true because they, what I got paid, what you get paid for for poetry unless you're in the super big uh, publications is extra copies. When did you start writing short stories and fiction? Uh, okay. The first short story I ever wrote was in fifth grade. Wow. It was called Hector the Garbage Collector. Come on. No, really. <laughs> uh, and it won a, some prize. But then I'd stop writing fiction, although uh, many of my college professors would disagree oh. uh, looking at my term papers. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what happened was I, I, I got a normal, a normal job, quote unquote, normal job. I was working in the freight forwarding industry wow. at the World Trade Center first and then at Kennedy Airport. And at night I used to travel once a week for meetings in Manhattan. And there were a lot of hours to kill between leaving job and being in the city. How long did you work that job? For five years. Mm -hmm. And if anybody's ever seen Goodfellas, those are the people I work with. Wow. No, literally. Wow, the Latanza. Yeah, we, we had a saying that if it fell off the truck on Tuesday, we were wearing it on Wednesday. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so so I met some really interesting characters there. But so I, I took, uh, I said, let me go back and take a night class. So I went back to Brooklyn College and took a night class. And the night class Did you was, have a BA or no? Uh, no, you know, I never graduated college. Where'd you go? Brooklyn College. Wow. I have 123 credits, and you need like 128. Come on. No, really. Damn. And I've taught college without a college degree. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I'm not like George Santos. You know, I don't right, lie right, about right, my yeah, background. You're, you're honestly yeah. Let's you know, say, a dropout. <laughs> I, went, I went to college for a real long time and learned a lot of stuff, but I just had reached the point where I needed to get out of the house. And wow. So... I took this night class, and the night class was American detective fiction. And I was not a, a reader of crime fiction. Really? No, my, you know, crime fiction to me, like I like crime movies, but crime fiction novels were like the cheesy books on my dad's nightstand right. with the half-naked women holding guns. Right, you know, right, right. The, those lurid books. So that's what... You know, the Mickey Spillane stuff, which yeah. I admire him, by the way. He's kind of from your way, right? Yeah. He's kind of from out your way, more or less, Mickey uh, Spillane, right? I'm not sure. I think uh, he was a lifeguard in, in Really? I, it could in be. Rockaway yeah. as a kid, yeah. So, um, so the first three books we read in this class, and it wasn't a writing class, it was a reading class, you know, a survey class, 
was Farewell, My Lovely. Wow. Uh, the Continental Op and the Maltese Falcon. And this is actually true. And if we, if I schlepped my wife up here with me, you could have asked her. The night we finished reading and discussing Farewell, My Lovely, I came home and said to my wife, I want to quit my job. Um, I want to quit my job and write detective novels. Wow. And for the second time in her life, both times she's really regretted. She said, yes, do that. Uh-oh. Yeah, I know what the first time was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's our 40-year anniversary God this bless. summer. Yeah. God bless her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She, that's what I meant. Try living with a writer oh my sometime. Goodness. Where do you write? In the house? I do. I have an office in the house. Is it soundproof? or How, how, how are you about your space? Oh, I, I, I need absolute silence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really do. Uh, so it was a, it was an adjustment when she retired. Oh God! Yeah, just having someone in the house was was odd because oh, yeah. once the kids left for college and they you know they didn't really come back, I had the house alone for so long. You know, yeah. me and the cats. <laughs> <laughs> you go in the backyard every once in a while and have a cup of coffee. What type of guy? You walk around the house much the, when you're writing, or you know what I'm. Uh, I hate to say it, but I'm a TV addict. Yeah, huh? So, yeah, it helps clear my head. Is the television running when you write oh, sometimes? Oh, no, 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 no huh? music, no Nothing. television, no cats in the room. No, no, you know, no. everybody in my house knows you do not come into my office without knocking and asking. Uh, you know, it's my job. Uh, and my, my wife and my kids know that, that this is not, you know, people who don't write. You know, you write. Right. So you know this. But people who don't, Right, they'll view it as a hobby. It's not. It's not a hobby. This is my career. I earn a living doing yeah, yeah. this. So, you know, my family understands that. Once you allow the people around you to think it, that it's not that, is when you lose all the ground as a writer. I think if 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 you have people around you that don't look at it the way you do, it it gets it gets very difficult. Yeah. No, I I met my wife in a writing class, yeah, in so a poetry writing class, so she understood. Yeah, yeah. You know, in fact. When I bumped shoulders with her on the street two years after we were in this class wow. and we had lost touch, I quoted a line of her poem to her. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so she—that was it. That was it. Oh, uh, yeah. Smooth operator, Jesus. Well, it's a good thing I have a good memory. <laughs> Let me ask you: You said you you kind of weren't really into. You, you saw that crime fiction was kind of corny, but what, when did it start to pull you in as something you said, "Hey, you know, there's there's something here for me." Uh, the minute I started reading Ham, Hammond and Chandler, I mean, it's so cliche to say, oh, I was influenced by Hammond and Chandler. But it, it may be cliche, but for me, it's the truth. Uh, and I would add Lawrence Block and Philip Kerr to that. But the fact is that I could read their, their prose, and I saw poetry in their prose. I could see rhythm. I could see that they were contemplating what they were doing. They weren't only, it wasn't only the, the manifest content of what you saw on the page, but there was deep thought behind what they were doing, and that's how I approached poetry. So I was immediately attracted to the language above yeah. all else, above all else. How did you approach studying and training to be a writer once you kind of realized I know you're not. I know you're not into outlining. I know you're not into these kind of things that you learn about in school. But how did you approach getting better? There's only one way to get better at writing, in my opinion. 
And you know we had this talk right. on the way here is that I don't believe you can really teach writing, although I taught writing at Hofstra, um, is right. The yeah. only way to get better at it is to write. Um, Did you start seeking feedback from certain people or, or any type of instruction? Yeah, that's funny. No. N not a class, but maybe another writer. Yeah, you know, it's funny is, is I think I thrived because I didn't. Mm. I had a, a, you know, sort of informal writing group with friends of people I knew, but they weren't crime writers, mm. which was served me very well. Um, I think I, I'm always... a. You know, I, I'm not a joiner, generally. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I'm a good team player, but I'm not a joiner. So I would have, I, w I did better by not hearing feedback. There's a certain type of cynicism that you can avoid if you don't hang out with people who write about the same stuff that you do. Honestly, it, it's, I, I knew that as a 23-year-old kid. Sometimes you'd be around people and... For whatever reason, the energy goes down, you know, in, in certain situations. So so I, I always was the kind of person that, okay, I'm going to try this. And if I suck, it, won't, it doesn't feel good. Like, failing doesn't feel good. Uh, and I want to say that my first novel, Life Goes Sleeping, which is over there, got rejected 40 times. Wow. But when I, when I do teach, what I, I, I also have kept all of my rejection letters. I don't get them anymore, but I kept them all. And so I, to my classes, I would always hold up, a, it's about eight inches thick. I would hold up the rejection letter, file, and one book, and I said, if you um, think that one of these, the book, is worth all of these rejections, then maybe this is for you. But if you can't take rejection, it's never going to feel good but you're gonna get rejected. So if you can take rejection and learn from it, then maybe writing is for you. But if you can't deal with rejection, you know, as you know, it's, it's, it, it comes with the course. Yeah, I was dealing with some rejection today at lunch while we were sitting yeah, together. Yes. So it, it, uh, it is what it is. I, I, I just picked up here, looking at the copy of Life Goes Sleeping, your first novel. Um, you got some. I mean, you have Michael Connolly on the back, and 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 George Pelicanos, and and these people. What did you do to establish yourself as a writer that could get a book like this published? Anything, you know? Well, no. That actually, that that book was just published because um, I I I sent it to so many people, and I found the one. That's the magic: is finding either the agent and or the publisher who sees what you're trying to do. Um, you know, there's no prescription for how to do it. And I, and I would never recommend these days that anybody go about doing it the way I did it because publishing, like every five years, publishing changes in the way they do things. For instance, that book was published in 1991 when, I don't know, how many publishers were there in 1991? Um, now all of those publishers are owned by five publishing companies. Yeah. So... Uh, and and now I think they're gonna they're starting to centralize, you know, who looks at all the manuscripts for all of the and that doesn't serve anybody. That, that doesn't serve the writers well. It doesn't serve them well. But you know, uh, I I can't tell a publishing company how to run their business. But so the way I started by haphazardly sending out my my manuscript to people, 
That that won't work today. At this stage of the game, and I don't know what the answer is. It might be absurd to ask you, but are you still writing books that don't get published? When was the last time you did? Oh, a long time ago. 20 years ago? 20 years ago. Wow. Um, Because I have a good idea of what's publishable. Um, As as my my ex-editor, Chris Peppy at Putnam, used to say, if we knew what would be a hit, we would only publish hits. Right, right, right. <laughs> what, what, but, but what I wanted to ask you is, um, I don't know if you approach it that cynically, but, um, you know, a writer recently told me, he was a, kind of an essayist and magazine writer, writes a lot in the first person, told me it, it, he's older than me and been around a long time, and he says, at this stage of the game, I find way more reasons not to do something. Are you at that point where you have an idea and you say, ah, it could work, it might work, but if, if, you don't think it, if you don't think it could get to that next stage, you don't even start working on it? Yeah, you know, it's funny for me, it's, it, does it excite me? If it excites me, I will chase it down. In fact, the book, that, that last book that didn't get published, uh, I was talking about it with uh, some writer friends over the pandemic, four or five of our writer friends got together every Monday night and did a Zoom call. Wow, that's cool. And we still have the Zoom call, even Who, though the Who's pan- on there? Uh, Matt Goldman, mm-hmm. Mike Wiley, uh, Charles Salzberg, and Tom Straw. Salzberg has a new book coming out. Yes, yeah, Salzberg. Yeah. I'm, I'm, in fact, Tuesday it's coming out. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm interviewing him along with Tom Straw, awesome. a Connecticut resident. Yeah. Um, at the mysterious bookshop. So oh, that's you, awesome! Yeah, so I, I um I'd love to have him on this show. Charles, he'll yeah, come. Yeah, he'll yeah come. I actually have an email from him. I have to yeah. respond to. You somewhere I read that you witnessed either a fatal stabbing or somebody shooting. Who, or shooting. Well, how? What was that about, and how did that impact okay. your sense of purpose as a writer? Oh, I, it's funny. It's not funny. It's ironic. It's not funny. Um. I was 15 years old. I was working in uh, Baskin Robbins in Sheepshead Bay. <laughs> uh, 31 flavors. Yeah, 31 flavors. Uh, and I was walking. It was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day, a lot like today, a little warmer. And I was walking to work. And I'm at the crooked, el- the bent elbow of Sheepshead Bay Road and Jerome Avenue. And I hear something. And don't ask me how I know it wasn't a big truck backfire. It wasn't a car backfire. I know what firecrackers sound like. It was a gunshot. And unlike most normal people, uh, I ran towards it and not away from it. Wow. No, it was a very stupid thing to do. <laughs> I would not encourage anybody to do it. And as I ran up Jerome Avenue towards the post office... I see a guy, uh, an older gentleman, uh, older. Now, uh, now he <laughs> died. He was probably much younger than me. Yeah, yeah. He s- stumbled out of the post office, grabbed his abdomen, fell into the gutter. Wow. Uh, his body was in the in the pa- in, in the on the uh, asphalt, and his feet were on the sidewalk. And he had a little dime-sized red dot in his shirt. And I'm thinking. Look, that's a little tiny thing. But, of course, a 15-year-old who doesn't, doesn't know anything about internal bleeding right. or what the damage a bullet does, you know, I didn't then mm-hmm. know any of this. The ambulance comes. The first, no one does anything. 
you know, there's this amazing phenomenon in group behavior is if you, if I was alone, I probably would have run and helped them. But when you're in a group of people, group psychology is everybody's waiting for everybody Next else person to, to help. Yeah. So finally somebody comes out of the post office, puts something under his head. You can hear an ambulance is coming. Um, now we crowd around him. Uh, the ambulance comes. They put him on a stretcher, and the minute they put him on the stretcher, his chest starts heaving madly, and they're doing the benzy bag, you know, and they're doing compressions, and nothing. Nothing. He just stops breathing. And here is the thing that sticks in my mind and will never, ever, ever go away. Wow. They take his left sock off. He's wearing shorts. They take his left sock off, and they run a tongue depressor along the bottom of his left foot. And like, I'm a 15-year-old kid who doesn't understand about internal bleeding, let alone why they're running a tongue depressor along a dead man's left foot. As it turns out, my wife's an occupational therapist, uh-huh. and she explained to me that they were checking for a, what's called a Babinski reflex. And the only two people who don't have a Babinski reflex are babies, newborns, and the dead. Wow. So when the ambulance drove away, the only thing left was this guy's sock on the sidewalk. Wow. Holy smokes. Yeah. So That's intense. So, yeah, so you know what? I, I suppressed that memory for a long time. Yeah. It was pretty traumatic. I can imagine. I, I actually told a story. <sighs> Patrick, I wonder what episode that was that I told the story about the train hitting the guy and only seeing from his leg down. Um, he was wearing shorts just like Patty is today. Uh, Patrick Frenette, our engineer in the studio, is wearing shorts because it is actually very nice out. Uh, but yeah, that was a. Yeah. I can imagine that impacted you for it a was, long time because it, it's the little image that you remember. It's almost. Yeah, it's the Banlon sock on the sidewalk. And that whatever. sock on the sidewalk kind of it, it connects the dots to everything else that happened. It's like, oh, that happened, that happened, up to the sequence. It, it's unbelievable. I know what you mean. One realization I had as a writer a long time ago was that all of my heroes worked odd jobs. And we <laughs> talked about that before. I assume all you do is write now. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, and probably clean up the house. I do all the cooking. Oh, okay. Uh, how did those experiences shape your stories and you as a writer, being kind of a, a working guy? Well, I, I always find it interesting that people... Uh, it kept me connected to the real world. I think... The, the the best thing I could say is it kept me connected to what most people go through in their lives. Um, I, you know, I, I worked in restaurants for a long time, and, uh, you know, you learn about restaurants, but you also learn about people. You learn about who's, who's struggling, who's working in the restaurant. Are they married? Aren't they, are they divorced? Why are they there? I, I tell you, I drove in a home heating oil delivery truck for about seven years on and off. Wow. And, Were you writing in those days? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and not as much because it is a hard job. This is the 90s or? Yeah, the, ni- the late 90s, early 2000s. And in fact, the, the first review of mine in the New York Times was read to me by my brother while I was sitting in the cab of a uh, Mack truck. Wow. Uh, so. Uh, and then I had to go deliver oil. Must have been a glorious. It moment. was great, but yeah. I had to then go turn and deliver oil. And what it, also what it taught me was, uh, 
what being tough really is. Being tough is not carrying a gun. Being tough is at five o'clock in the morning in zero degrees, being 20 feet up in the air on an oil truck, uh, filling your tank where, in a yard where if you spill one drop, not only are you gonna get excluded from it, but your company is gonna get excluded from it. And doing deliveries in the snow, in the rain, in the sleet, that's tough. People who work outdoors, who physical labor outdoors, that's, that's tough. Plus, it was a cash on delivery business. So there were days I had $5,000 in cash in my pocket in most in neighborhoods that a lot of people wouldn't yeah. go in. But it is the job. So you do your job. And that's, to me, that's tough. Carrying a gun. Now, I'm not saying cops aren't tough. I'm just saying having a gun doesn't make you tough. Sure. There are things in life that that, that really, harden you. Really, that harden yeah. you. Um, how, how did you navigate the world when you didn't have a book out and you didn't have an agent? And what what led to your career kind of getting started? I, I was lucky. I always say I, I, the first piece of long fiction after Hector the Garbage Collector <laughs> that I ever wrote was published as my first novel. So wow. I was very fortunate because I'll be honest with you, and I I'm always tells the truth about this is I'm not sure that I could be like a lot of authors who wrote two novels, three novels that sat in a drawer and still be writing. I'm not sure I would have put up with that. Continued, yeah. So I was lucky. And, you know, that's life is just full of, like, luck and coincidences and stuff, even though, you know, your, your protagonists are always supposed to say, I don't believe in coincidences. They yeah. all say, every police, yeah. every PI, every cop show, I don't believe in coincidences. But life is full of coincidences. Yeah, it certainly is. In Sleepless City, Nick Ryan emerges uh, for you as a new character uh, at the start of a new series. But I want to quickly talk about each of your previous protagonists. Sure. Starting with Dylan Klein, why don't you just tell the people who, who he was and the situations he was in. Dylan Klein was a uh, hackneyed uh, insurance investigator. <laughs> He was before, you know, I'm, I, I, like I said, I quit my job and then I had to figure out, what am I doing? You know, it's one thing to say, I was born to do this. It's another thing to actually do it. So it took me two and a half years of fumbling around. And I figured I, I wasn't qualified to write a cop character. I, I am now, but I wasn't then. I wasn't qualified to write a real PI, <laughs> except for what I read. Um, so I thought, yeah, let me let me have a guy who's stumbling around, <laughs> right? I'm good at stum as all of us stumble through life. You wrote what you knew, which was not the whole right. job. You right. didn't know I, the whole job. Right. Yeah. So, and I was lucky and enough. And you wrote someone who didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and I was lucky enough that while I was stumbling around looking for, you know, to find a character, I met a New York City detective named uh, Tom McDonald, as if there aren't 3,000 Tom, Tom McDonald's, McDonald's on, on the NYPD. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and Tom and I worked together in a restaurant, and he worked for the Organized Crime Control Bureau as a detective. And he was, you know, pardon my French, he was a real horse <laughs> Harry. You know? <laughs> he loved to talk, and we were friendly, and we played golf together. And <sighs> he was from Brooklyn, like, so we, we had a lot in common. So he taught me a lot about what it is to be a cop. Wow. So he's a character, actually, in the first three books. Wow. Johnny McClough is him. <laughs> but so finding him as a friend, and, then, and this is one of those coincidence right. things, is 
if I didn't meet him working in a restaurant, I don't know that I, I would still be being published. And I think that that's really, I think that that's actually better advice for writers than you even think. And I think that, um, again, it's just my, my opinion, but I, I think you've got to work a number of bad jobs, and I think you've got. It just sounds. It's not so much that it's a rite of passage. You might be able to to accomplish what you and I are talking about at a good job, but at the end of the day, I think you have to be out there in the world, interacting with the people, as opposed to kind of thinking about what somebody's life might be. Or, what I think is very dangerous for writers, especially new writers, is thinking about what the audience wants. Right. It's a very dangerous way to think. If it excites you, right, try it. Yeah. That's the thing about writing is people, you know, I, I used to know a psychologist, and she would always say, people want a magic pill, right? They want a cure. They, they don't want to go to therapy. They want you to tell them, what's wrong, how to fix it, and snap your fingers and fix it. And she would always say, Reed, there's no such thing as a magic pill. Yeah. And then she would wait a few seconds and then say, but if you find one, <laughs> save me half. <laughs> uh, 2001, uh, Walking the Perfect Square is the first Mo Prager uh, novel. And you had how many of those? Uh, nine. Nine of those, impressive. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that character. Yeah. Mo Prager is talking about books that weren't published. I wrote two novels. You know, this is typically ambitious. Since I wasn't, I wasn't trained as a writer, my first book gets published and I go, okay. You know, uh, what I didn't realize then is your first book is not the end. It's the beginning. It's, this, it's the end of the beginning. Yeah. So... I said, so I got over ambitious and I wrote these two novels and they just were they were okay but they weren't publishable I and I didn't know that then because still I today if you look at those things there's nothing you could do to fix them no and I wouldn't look back at them because I'm so past right. that and I even by the time my second novel came out I was beyond where they were but out of those novels came a character now he was originally named Mo Einstein right <laughs> and it was too clever by half right but there was something about that character that i had written that was really appealing to me and thought i can't the books fleh. you know the books themselves they weren't worthy but that character man there's something about that mo guy i really you stuck like. with yeah i stuck with and so from that's why i always tell people there's no such thing as wasted writing there's because you never know, even out of the stuff that didn't get published, that you can pluck things from it. I definitely had that experience with the book that I've been working on, stuff that I'm either not going to use or it, it, it turned into valuable material for sure. Um, but just to, just to do a little pause on Mo Prager. So there's really not any lost Mo Prager novels. There are Mo Einstein novels. Yes. And and he kind yes, of evolved from there. And I wouldn't even know where to find them. Right, anymore. right. Like I they're they're in paper they're in boxes somewhere in my house somewhere. Wow. And and they were written on typewriters. So That's amazing. Oh yeah, you know. Uh, in two thousand six you published a, a book called Hose Hose Monkey. Hose Monkey. And uh, the main character there is a guy named Joe Serpy, but you wrote it as Tony Spinoza. 
under a, a, a pen a pseudonym, name, yeah. a pseudonym. Oh, why don't you, why don't you explain yeah. that? Yeah, well, that comes from uh, working in the oil business, in the home heating oil business. And I couldn't, I had a non-compete clause in my contract, so there was a Mo book out at the same time, and I couldn't publish another book with my name on it. So, but Hose Monkey is Hose Monkey and the Fourth Victim. I wrote two books with Joe Serpy as a <laughs> as a protagonist, and it, it's interesting because they're they're different yeah. than than the other books. They're a little rawer, a little more violent. Um, and you know that one of the things with once you establish a character in a series, there are limits to where you sh can go with that person. Mm -hmm. And what's freeing about then writing under a pseudonym and a different character is, you can push the, the envelope a little. So that's what Joe Serpy was. Let me ask you something. What's the experience like as a writer? Having another book out under your name, but then also having that, like, was is it is it you're getting updates kind of secretly from the publisher? What what's the? I never look at my numbers ever. Wow. The only time I know how I'm doing is when I'm on the best. I know this sounds obnoxious, but when you're on the bestseller list, you know how well you're doing. But I never ever ever look at your numbers because one of the first lessons, the most important lesson I can ever give somebody who's published is the only thing you can control in publishing is the words that go on the page. You can't really control how well your books are doing. To constantly keep track of how your books are doing will make you nuts. So I, I really would urge people, you know, do what you can. You know, go on tours that your publisher pays for. You know, buy ads, be on social media. But it is kind of insane to constantly keep track. I know people keep track every day of their numbers. It's insane. No, it, it really is crazy. Let me let me ask you something though. Would you? It, does it interest you? I mean, you know, as a writer, you have so much material here, and and the thing about books is they don't expire, but they be they become hard to find. You ever get a kind of another full stop? You ever get approached by some of these publishers that want to bring back? Books of yours from 30 years ago? Uh, no, because these days your books never go out of print because of electronics. Uh -huh. So all of my books are available on back, uh, you know, on somebody's websites. Although I did just get the rights back to my first four novels. Wow. So, and that, the fourth novel is Walking the Perfect Square, the first Mo book, which uh, is the largest selling of the Mo books, wow. so someday I'll I'll either publish it or sell the rights to somebody else. Would you kind of release Hose Monkey with your own name on it? At oh, some it point? has been. It has, it has been. been huh? Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, Twenty thirteen, Dirty Work uh, brings another another character, Gulliver Dowd, and this is a, kind of an interesting situation for you. Why don't you tell the, uh, the well, listeners? Well, yeah, Gulliver Dowd. I was approached by a Canadian, my agent, my then agent was approached by a Canadian publisher, Orca Books. And they, they, their specialty is late to uh, literacy readers. So people who are, you know, either foreign language speakers in Canada or, you know, uh, people who didn't know how to read and then learn. 
So they they approached me to write what they consider novels, which I think here would be considered novellas. Does it run about two hundred pages? Yeah, they're they're you know they're twenty to thirty thousand words. Okay. Um, and they said, can you write a detective novel? I like challenges as a writer. So they said, can you write a like a grown up detective writer? Because because the people we serve don't want to read kids books. Right? They want to read adult so, books. So they want to read adult books, but they, they're not, their vocabulary, you know, you can't write exacerbate in it. They, you know, you can't write pneumonia, cardiosis in it. You can't do that. So, and the plots have to be linear, and the characters have to be appealing. So I said, okay. And they paid me pretty well for it. And so I wrote, I think, four of them. Um, Dirty Work, Valentino Pier, The Boardwalk, and I think one more. Um, you think? No, no. I, <laughs> you know, you ask me to name all the characters in these forget books, it. forget it. Yeah, I, yeah. So um, you probably forget if some of the characters are real people or not. Oh, you're like, oh, that that name sounds familiar. Oh, I made that guy up 20 yeah, years ago. Yeah. Uh, no, I'll never forget the funniest experience with that was uh, the audio books became popular after like uh, the Mo book started getting published. So then Audible bought the rights, and the guy who's reading the books, very nice guy, calls me up and says, Reed, who would you cast as this character, this character? And I said, I will never tell that, because yeah. I don't want the audience to think of who I think. I want them to think. Right. He goes, no, no, just tell me. And I, what, I, what I was really doing was kind of delaying because I didn't know who half the characters were. Right, right. So I had to go back to the books and look <laughs> them up. <laughs> was, was that Chris Ciula? No. No? No. Because he read the, one of the Gus Murphy right, books. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of Gus Murphy, in 2016, you write Where It Hurts, and that introduces us to Gus Murphy. He's an ex-Suffolk PD cop. Correct. Who is now driving the courtesy van or the courtesy bus at kind of a rundown the hotel Paragon, at the Paragon, Paragon Hotel. hotel. Um, my connection to this character is actually a really deep, um, deeply rooted personal story because when I found out who the character was, I was immediately interested because of an experience I had. Uh, has to be 2006, yeah. Um, right when I got out of college, I was uh, trying to get myself into the magazine business and... Uh, you know, no lever had been pulled uh, kind of midway through the summer, still looking for a job. So I went um, not far from my house uh, in Queens where I lived with my parents. And uh, there's a, an old comfort inn that faces the largest Jewish cemetery in the oh, world. Oh, I, I know. I know it. Yeah. And um, so I go to the comfort inn there. And I figured, out oh, this is like 10 blocks from my house. What could they have me do if I work overnights? I can write and take notes. Nobody will know what I'm doing. And I go there and I get this. It was supposed to be training, but nothing actually ever happened. Like I ended up going like in a week I went three days and I just sat in this room for a while. And then, then I did, I mean, I did absolutely nothing. They tried to show me some stuff at the front desk, but like the manager was always busy. I struck up a conversation with the guy who was driving the courtesy van. Um, his name was uh, Greg. Uh, was it Greg? Jonathan. So I, 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 
I strike up a conversation with the courtesy van driver, Jonathan Walker was his name. And this guy had an interesting story. He was a tall dude, kind of a big body guy, uh, black dude. And obviously, you know, the old thing is, did you play any basketball? And he did. And he went on to tell me that he had played at some small college ball and he had tried to go professional in Mexico and he had played in some of the, the minor um, domestic professional basketball leagues here in the United States. And we had a ton to talk about. He was like a tall guy and he was smoking his Newports and making everybody smile or, or driving the manager crazy um, in, the, in the lobby of the hotel. I decided somewhere in the second week of that what was supposed to be training that I just wasn't going to continue with this. I got another, I ended up getting a, a little internship in the magazine business that kind of justified uh, what I would be doing with myself. And I decided to kind of just give up on the hotel job without ever actually starting at all. But I always wondered what happened to John Walker and about, oh, I don't even know now. If it was during the pandemic or it was before the pandemic, I decided that I was going to do some detective work and Google around and see if I could find out what happened to John Walker, who played at such and such college and had, I had all this biographical. He was from Buffalo, had all this biographical info on him. And what had happened was I stumbled upon a newspaper article, unfortunately, uh, for me. And that guy, John Walker, had killed his entire family Ugh. and then killed himself in a, in a parking lot somewhere. I think, he had, I think he had gotten to Vegas or something like that on the plane, and then he, something like that. But it was really crazy. And I think, that, I think as a writer, you, you kind of, um, not that I ever wrote about Jonathan Walker, but these are the, inf these are the okay. things that happen that stick with you for a reason. See, what's funny is people think, see, w there's a real difference between inspiration and influence and writing about what you know. That might very well influence your writing, yeah. but, but not in a way in which a reader would understand that that influenced me. It's very indirect. Right, yeah. and the feelings you had about it might be what really influenced you're like, like the feelings I have about watching the guy getting killed. Yeah. You know, now I've never written that scene. I've written scenes of people being shot, but I've never written that scene. But how I felt oh, yeah. that day, that has stuck with me, and that has influenced everything I've written since then. It, it's, a, it's a crushing thing because you, um, you kind of want to understand it, and there's no way to. But it drives you in a certain creative way. I, you know, I, I think that's when you know you're a writer, when you take something like that that's happened to you and you try and channel, channel it into what the art that you're creating, if, if you will. So that was Gus, that was Gus Murphy. That was my connection, right. the, the, the uh, kind of emotional connection I felt to Gus Murphy, who he was, what he might have even been capable of. Right. Um, but in, in 2014, uh, you didn't create the character, but you began writing, uh, reviving Robert B. Parker's Jesse Stone character. This is a, really where I picked your work up for the first time. Can you talk about how a guy from Brooklyn was chosen to write about a police chief from small town New England? Sure. Um, 
you know, the story I always, you know how people create, um, humans create narratives. They can't help it. This is where conspiracy theories come from. You know, if with a, absent facts, people will create them. So my thought was, how did they pick me for this, <laughs> right? You'd never read Robert B. Parker. I was really. not a Parker fan. No. I had read him because I read Poodle Springs. Yes, which my dad was, was him, obsessed which, with that. Which was him finishing Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. And I always liked when Chandler, when Parker fans would write to me and say, how dare you finish Bob's work? <laughs> and I would write, how dare Bob, Bob Parker write Raymond, Raymond Chandler. Chandler work? So um, He wouldn't have cared about Yeah, No, absolutely, way. yeah. He no. loved the business. I actually met Robert V. Parker. Really? Yeah. Um, at a bookstore in, in uh, Cambridge. Wow called Kate's Mystery Books, which isn't there anymore, unfortunately. So, in any case, after Bob died, uh, his his widow, Joan, went to Otto Penzler, a famous uh, We've spoken about person Otto, in, yeah. in, the, in the publishing business. Owner of Mysterious right, Bookshop. To, to uh, create a kind of a uh, memorial, a uh, fitting memorial for Bob. And so... So he said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a lot of writers to write essays about Bob's, about Spencer. Did about, that come out? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's called In Pursuit of Spencer. Um, so, and it came out many years ago. Uh, and so most people in the book, Dennis Lehane and you know, Ace Atkins and, you know, S.J. Roseanne. So a whole bunch of, you know, well-known. And so he comes to me and says, you can't write about Boston and you can't write about Spencer. You have to write about Jesse Stone. <laughs> so I go back and I read all the Jesse Stones and I write this essay called Go East, Young Man, because don't forget, Jesse... Did you like them any better when you read it that Yes, time? yeah. yeah. Uh, so I re read the books and, I, and my essay is called Go East, Young Man, because Jesse is is in LA right. and now has to come east. Uh, so I thought they read that, they liked, and, and it got some buzz that, that the people at Putnam uh, and Michael Brandman, who wrote the books after yes. me, after but Bob died. Prior to you, yeah. Yeah, they, they kind of parted ways. So I figured Chris Pepe, who was my editor, had read my essay, thought, oh, he gets Jesse, he'll be good. So I walk into my first meeting with Chris, I'd never met her, and I go, so you've read in, you know, my essay in Pursuit of Spencer. And she went, what? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? I said, and I did. I, she goes, no, I've never read it. Never I've got heard it, of this. I've got, to, I've got to get a copy, <laughs> right? So no, it turns out that Chris had always liked my work, and knew I was available, and thought I would be good for the character. And I guess she was right. It did come out really good. What's your favorite book that you wrote in the Parker series? Uh, the bitterest pill. It's interesting. I really just kind of recently read that one. What 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 kind of touched you about that? Well, it was very topical. It was about uh, you know a young girl in in uh, Paradise, Massachusetts, who uh, had everything to live for and dies of a, a, a opioid overdose. Mm -hmm. And you know, although the the epidemic is quote unquote over with it isn't over no with way. It's, we're going to be living with that forever definitely so. not where you live definitely no, on Long definitely, Island yeah, it's, been it's, it's everywhere it's, but Long Island yeah. particularly hard and in also places like Appalachia it's, oh, yeah. oh, it's terrible and um, you know it's, it's, a cr it's a real crime and so first of all when it's a, a young woman who dies it's always a more it, you know it's, it's gut wrenching because I had a daughter 
I have a daughter. And it's so so in, in some ways it, it worked the best. Jesse had been, I had been writing him enough to feel like he was my character. And of course then I stopped writing him. Was there, like if you look on your Wikipedia page, it said there was supposed to be another book after that from you with Stone. Uh, yeah, I mean, I knew what the book was going to be. I had Je- Jesse at the end of this book. Jesse has give, has gone to rehab and has given up alcohol, which is you know, because you get tired of writing scenes it's a long of road Jesse for being him. Yeah. yeah, of Jesse being drunk. It gets very tiring writing that. And here's a whole series of crimes happen in this book, other than this young girl dying. Uh, that and the Jesse's sitting at a bar with a scotch in his hand and that's where the book ends and is he going to drink it so the next book was going to answer these questions and what was going to happen and you know we we decided to leave and stop writing them and that's publishing too yeah so you're definitely done with jesse stone huh yeah i i there i think even lupica's done with it really yeah yeah um Kind of a parallel question. You know, Tom Selleck uh, made maybe a 10 uh, movies about Jesse Stone. With 30 novels, can you share with our listeners insight into some of your experiences with book and movie options and, <laughs> and just how hard it is to see a movie made based on a novel? Well, a how lot. Many, how many of your stuff has been optioned? Two. Wow. Yeah. Um, although I'm pretty confident that, you know, knock on wood, that uh, Sleepless City, Nick Ryan will get sold somewhere. There's there's something to it, yeah. for sure. Uh, you know, it's an it, it's what you learn early on is don't get too excited yeah. because almost nothing gets made. You know, things get bought, but almost nothing gets made. You know, it goes into development. It, movies and TV cost a lot of money. Yeah. You know, what was the furthest you've gotten with something? Um, Tower. Which I wrote with a the award-winning that's Brit- a one-off Irish one. Irish not yet standalone Irish author Ken Bruin. Um, it was the uh, film rights were sold several times, and there was a big star attached to it. And then he changed agents, and his agents new agent said, "Don't do that," and that was that. So, but that's a very common tale between writers in Hollywood. This is very common. Just never works out. Or it often doesn't work out. Right in the middle of six novels in the Parker universe, you released two novels about the former Long Island cop. We just talked about this, Gus right. Murphy. Where, what happened to Gus? Uh, Gus still exists in, the, in, the, uh, in a parallel universe. <laughs> uh, you know, the problem is when you leave a publisher, this is... You know, I always think that to, to listeners to this stuff, really, are they interested in the publishing business? But it is unfortunately part, you know, there's art. The writing is art. Although some people would say my writing is an art. No. Uh, writing is art, but publishing is business. And there's this ever kind of changing landscape where the two meet. And so, you know, when you leave a public, my, I was at Putnam basically to write Jesse Stone. And when I stopped writing Jesse Stone, I guess I hadn't signed a new contract to write more Gus books. So Gus is still alive as a character. I've written the third book, and hopefully someday that book will appear. 
Do you have the ability to take that someplace else? In the uh, they have the right of first refusal, I believe. Oh. So we'll ask for a lot of money and they'll refuse. <laughs> is there, quickly, is there any chance you revisit any of the old characters? Mo? Oh, I, I write the occasional Mo short story. In fact, the Mo short story was nominated for a Seamus Award a few wow. years ago. So yeah, I, I, I enjoy writing. I can't write any Jesse Stone stuff, right. and I'm not really interested in I writing I didn't it. think you would be. Um, and, you know, one of the things you do is you move on. Um, and I've pretty much moved on, but except for Mo. Mo is so close to me that I, I don't think I'll ever fully move on from Mo. And, you know, Mo is such an, I, I mean, I, I'm slow to say this, but I have to say it. Not many series go through six publishers, and yeah. six different publishers publish Mo books. No, he's like an old friend that you think you're gonna about to lose touch with, but then he then he knocks on your door again, or he calls your house, yeah, or something like yeah. that. Um, let, let's talk about Sleepless City, sure, and the world Nick Ryan gets sucked into. You know, you want you set up what you can. Okay, well, Nick is a is a uh, a very uh, skilled undercover cop, and he. In, in while he's in uniform, he decides he's going to go serve in the army. He goes to Afghanistan for two tours. He leaves, and he leaves behind a woman he's been dating since they were 16 years old. Nick comes from a you know working class Brooklyn, uh, Bay Ridge, working class Brooklyn, and um, all of his family are cops, and. Shayna is a, you know, father's a wealthy uh, financier. Um, And so she's, she's, the people in her world are all moneyed and powerful and all the people in Nick's world are, you know, uh, not losers, but they're the lost and they're the working class. So he leaves, he goes to Afghanistan and comes back, gets his job. In the interim, his father, who's also a cop, has voluntarily testified at a corruption hearing. Yeah. And if you know anything about the cops... Um, that's a no-no. That's a no-no. Because, you know, it's one thing to be subpoenaed. It's another thing to volunteer. And to cooperate. Yeah. And to cooperate. And why he cooperated was a good reason, but, you know, uh, I was very... It's unforgiven among it's, the cops. Oh, no, yeah, it's absolutely... 100%. In fact, I was a f- very friendly with... Uh, a guy named Vincent Morano who wrote a book called Cop Hunter. Wow. And he um, was the first internal affairs detective to ever become a first, a, a first grade detective. Wow. Um, and I knew him, and he was hated. You know, uh, you know, che- rats in his locker, cheese in his locker. Yeah, you, I actually you know, the grew whole... up around the corner from Charlie Campisi. Yeah, so yeah, so I knew him, and I also knew Lou Eppolito. Yeah, yeah. So you know who Lou Eppolito is? He was a hit. He was a detective who was also a, a hitman. Hit yeah, right. And I would say if you polled cops, they would like Lou Eppolito more than they 100%. would like Vincent. Oh, hundred percent. So, so you know, Nick didn't do anything to be hated, but you know. The son of a rat is a rat. Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. The apple doesn't fall so, far from the tree in so their mind. So he works undercover, and he's, he's, you know, Nick Ryan Jr., whose father is a rat. Mm-hmm. So he is unloved, and 
the guy who gives, I mean, this is not, this is, you find this pretty early in the book, is that the guy who was trained him as a detective has committed suicide because he planted blood evidence. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, this is a guy, Pete Moretti, who's dedicated his life to the, to the police. He's yeah, there's, there's a lot of great contrast between right. that person and another character in the right. book. I, I love it. Right. Was there any real life inspiration for Nick Ryan? Any individual, you know? No. Uh, you know, I just, that's one of the things I, I, I try never to write from real, ca- real life characters. Ever. I use their names sometimes, but I, you know, like friends who, Matt Caputo might right. turn up. That'd in the book. be great. Who knows, yeah. you know, as the next dead body. Or, I could be. Or, a, you know, a, <laughs> or, a, or a hockey player. You, know, <laughs> you never know. But I try never to use real people. I use inspiration, you know, and I don't even try to conglomerate people, which a lot of writers do. I just try to create, I hear their voices in my head. Well, listen, there are some situations and characters in the book, uh, People uh, who have hoodwinked the police, like this Minnie Madoff Lister. Yes, and then that ca- those characters. Right. Yes, and yes. then and then a media personality who does similar, uh, similarly the same kind of hoodwinking to the As public Alex with Jones misinformation, right. like yeah. Alex Jones. What made you want to tackle those issues? They're obviously great things to play with right now. They're out there in the public. Both of those situations. What made you want to play? They with excited them? me. I mean, that's always the that, that you know. I know I've given you that answer like five times. It's a good one. But the bottom line is, uh, you have to put a guy in tough situations, and all of those situations the the you know killing of unarmed black teenagers, right? You know, it's not as clear cut. You know, when you got to make a class, you know, what 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 is that about? Where do you stand on that? What you know, what are the sides of the story? That I mean, that's a big part of the story, right? The Bernie Madoff, what he did, the impact he had on people. You know, think of the damage that that guy did. But what if you couldn't find the money and you needed to find the money, right? <laughs> and what about you know, people who are you, everyone knows is guilty, but gets off on a technicality. What do you do about that? So these are three things that, you know, I I don't take a stand on them. That's one thing I have to be clear about. That's why, to me, writing this stuff is interesting because well, it brings the reader to those yeah, places. Yeah, the re- UK. What would you do? The interpretation. You know. The, yeah. the, you know Am I wrong to find similarities uh, thematically with some of the Jesse Stone stuff that you worked on? You had prescription drugs, you had white nationalists, these things that are kind of affecting people. Are those serious things, the stuff you like to work with? Absolutely. I'm not interested in frivolous. Like, I don't find anything, I don't find violent crime funny. You know, uh, I, you know I, I understand if other people do, but I don't. So you will never find me writing about a, you know, humorous murders <laughs> or um, topics that are not serious topics. I, it just doesn't interest me. How much of what happens in Nick Ryan's uh, world, uh, particularly regarding police relations, how much of that was inspired by things you've been told by the police? Um, you know, it's funny. I I didn't ask my cop friends about this because it puts them in a funny position because you know that in some ways personally they probably are as horrified as 
many people. The next person. Uh, the next person is. But you know, like the whole the discussion we had about being a rat, even though Nick's father had perfect reason and did the right thing, police, you know, have to stick together. And you can't be seen as the guy or the girl or the woman who isn't backing the company line, who isn't. So I never wanted to put a, a, one of my police friends in that situation, although I have a sense of how they felt about things. Just to compare him a very little bit before we start to wrap up, you know, Nick seems a little more refined. Nick Ryan seems a little more polished, let's say, than than Gus Murphy, and even a little more than Jesse Stone, who's been... Um, you know, a long-time alcoholic since the days of Robert Parker actually writing the series. Um, do you think that a polished character like Ryan, is that what readers want? What do readers want I, in these heroes? It's funny, and I will say I never think about what readers want. I hope that's what they want. You know, the funny thing is, like I said, Nick is not a stumbler. Nick knows what he's doing. And as as you know, when you read the book, you know, sometimes to do his job, the job he's given, the job he takes, as the person who offers the job says, if we just wanted an assassin, there's no shortage of an assassin, but there are, it's good to know which is the salad fork. Right. And yeah. which is the, you know, the, which side the drinks go on and which side the bread goes on. Yeah. To do his job the right way, he had to be that polished guy. Do you think Gus Murphy was kind of like too broken to handle something like this? Could he have handled this task at Nick? No, no, because no, he also didn't have the experience of an undercover cop. That's that's a very important. Nick, Nick has all the elements for the job he gets, and that's why they, whoever they are, really need him because he has a unique skill set. Skill set. Say that five times fast. Just pat video real quick, and then we're going to go video this one question because it's the last one. Okay. Reed, uh, we usually like to ask a lot of our, our writers that come on um, just to share some type of writing advice with the, with the Westcon MFA community and the, and the writers that may be listening to the show. You know, something that you, you kind of live by as a writer. It, c it could be as simple as something that you include in a story or it could be as simple as what time of day you write oh no I, I actually I'm full of advice <laughs> <laughs> but I think the best piece of advice I can give any writer is there's no such thing as wasted writing that the more you write the better you'll get and it's the way to get better is to keep doing it and not to hold uh, onto your writing too dearly it's words on a page or words on a screen, and you can change them. So never fear uh, working on your on what you've written. Our guest today has been Reed Farrell Coleman. He's the author of Sleepless City. It comes out in July from Blackstone Publishing. Thanks for joining us today, Reed. It was really a pleasure having one of my favorite writers ever on this show. Thanks a lot, Matt. Appreciate it. Now the fun part. And that was fantastic. Um, it was really great speaking with Reed Farrell Coleman. Again, he's really one of my favorite writers. Um, 
I do enjoy that commercial fiction genre. I, I do sometimes uh, go down that aisle in the supermarket where there are books or in the in the drugstore or pharmacy uh, type places where they do sell commercial novels and stuff like that. And I am really um, very thankful for our engineer and producer, uh, Patrick Frenette, who's... Uh, just been so courteous as to help us move this show along uh, every other week. And I am very grateful to Mr. Reed Farrell Coleman uh, for making the trek from Long Island here to Danbury, Connecticut. I am hoping to do something with the show where we can more interact with the community. So if anybody's out there, you know, this is Public Reading Club from WXEI on 91.7 from Western Connecticut State University. And we want to hear from you, however you can get in touch with us. You can email us at thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com. You can send us direct messages on Instagram, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. We're open to you know uh, people from the Western Connecticut State community coming in and, and uh, maybe reading from their work. But we also want to hear what books the listeners are um, enjoying. And you can send those to us uh, via email and direct message on social media. It has been really fun uh, doing this episode. One, one thing I can say is that it's so great um, just to have the opportunity to do the show. It does take up a little bit of time, even though we only do two episodes a month. But I, I do like to have the writer's books fresh in my mind when they come into the studio. And Reed Farrell Coleman, I had one of his books um, going on my Spotify in an audio book and then I had just read his last uh, Robert B. Parker book which is called The Bitterest Pill uh, Jesse Stone series and I had um, gotten deep into Sleepless City which is uh, just fantastic um, I really enjoy Reed Farrell Coleman's books and I want to hear whose books you enjoy and if we can get them into the studio um, I would love that I do have some more writers that I like um, that we are going to get on the show one way or another possibly via Zoom but the hope is that eventually we can do some of these public reading clubs in Danbury publicly when these authors have new books coming out I invited Reed Farrell Coleman up here Peter Blauner up here Paul Cantor up here uh, Brianna McGuckin is obviously an alumnus but the idea is that if we can invite people up to Danbury maybe we can do more book events in town and kind of foster the literary community that is here um, uh, just might not be as synchronized as it could be um, we're going to get in now uh, in our outro to the show very quickly to a book recommendation that was sent to us by one of our avid readers and avid listeners Ron Evans. Ron is just a fantastic uh, guy who, you know, obviously he's uh, someone who has read almost every Stephen King book. I think we're coming up on the month where he catches up, which will be March. And then King has a book coming out in the fall, which I know he's also excited about. But he sent us a cool book. Written by Chris Herring, who is a senior writer with Sports Illustrated. I'm not too familiar 
with his work personally. But I was handed this book by Ron Evans, who's also a uh, fantastic sports fan, just an incredible follower of the local Danbury hockey team, and then uh, just a insane memorabilia collector. He sent us this book called Blood in the Garden by Chris Herring, The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. Um, I decided to bring this. This is one of the. This is pretty much the first sports book we've been recommended, I think. But um, you know, it's a definitive history of the 1990s New York Knicks, based on more than 200 interviews, illustrating how Pat Riley. Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Charles Oakley, and Anthony Mason resurrected the iconic franchise through oppressive physicality and unmatched grit. Oppressive physicality and unmatched grit. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is cool. I haven't read it, but Ron highly recommends it. He liked the insight that it had. Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of nice nostalgia for 90s basketball and, uh, I think there was a really um, that was a really sacred time in New York sports history. WFAN radio was talking about the Knicks all the time, which is something that Ron brought up when he uh, mentioned this book to me. And the Knicks were the center of attention for a minute. You know, the 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 Yankees were only starting to come around. The Mets weren't doing too good. Um, I think the Jets were probably trash at the time. Uh, the Islanders were falling out of place. The Rangers were kind of uh, going downhill after the 94 Stanley Cup there, I think. So the reality was the Knicks were kind of uh, going to be the next big thing. That was a really tough team. Um, I happen to like all of the guys that I'm looking at on the cover of this this book, uh, which has John Starks to the left, Patrick Ewing, Riley, Charles Oakley, and Anthony Mason. I once met Charles Oakley in a bar in the Bahamas many years ago. I was underage. I shouldn't have even been in the bar. But uh, he was the nicest guy, and it was really a shock and a shame to hear that he had had some problems at Madison Square Garden with the ownership there of the Knicks or... You know, it just it, that's just a bad look when a guy who was just really a, a heart and soul type player uh, for the Knicks at a time when they, you know, they were pretty good. Uh, I I think there might be a little bit of uh, you know hype into something like this, hyping up a book about how good the Knicks were at that time. They were good, uh, definitely not good enough to win the championship in those days. But um, you know, to you know. Some of these guys were incredible stories. Anthony Mason, great story. John Starks was a fantastic story. When I was an editor briefly at Slam Magazine, I was actually there for a few years, um, I interviewed Starks. And it was just amazing. He he had had some really tough times in his life. Uh, he had been arrested a couple of times when he was younger. His brother was a big-time drug dealer in Oklahoma. Uh, at least that was what he told me. And uh, for him to reach, you know, Pretty high heights in the NBA was uh, really impressive, uh, given where he came from and some of the situations he was involved in. So, uh, listen, if you're into the Knicks, and I'm sure some people, hopefully some people in this area um, of Connecticut are into the Knicks, 
You might like Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks by Chris Herring. Um, I, 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 you know, the Knicks are still kind of a sacred team for a lot of people. Um, even though the the Brooklyn Nets, you know, they're in the playoffs right now against the Philadelphia 76ers, and they've had a good run over the last couple of years, the Knicks are still very sacred to a lot of people. And I think that they're still beloved in Connecticut, you know. Uh, side note, if anybody listening from the Knicks organization is actually out there, we heard that you've been housing your development team, your G League team in Bridgeport, and we heard that a certain arena announcer who produces a certain radio show that, you know, um, has occasion to discuss books about the Knicks, sent his application into you guys to work for that Bridgeport-based Knicks team that, by the way, is still called the Westchester Knicks, and he wasn't given any type of reply. Well, forget yourselves. Um, yeah, so, Knicks, if you're out there, get in touch with Patrick Frenette, and he'll come work for you when he can next season in Bridgeport. Um, again, this has been a production of WXEI 91.7, streaming live on WXEI.org from Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut. I have been your host, Matt Caputo. With me today is my engineer, Patrick Frenette. Our guest was Reed Farrell Coleman. He's the author of Sleepless City. Book out in July. And we're signing off for this week. We have another episode coming out in two weeks, but we hope you enjoy this one. And again, let us know if there are any authors out there you'd like to hear from. We would like to mix up who uh, who we bring on the show. We'd like to make this more of an open forum. I love these mystery and crime books. Um, I'd love to mix it up. So just uh, be in touch and take care of yourselves. Thanks again for checking out Public Reading Club. Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury Radio. Hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Frenette and Matt Caputo.